This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Thank you for joining us today for part two on Warren Jeffs and the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we invite you to do so now. In the previous episode, we covered the history of the FLDS and Warren's rise to the top. We discussed how the FLDS's practice of polygamy and their strict interpretation of the Book of Mormon makes them different from the Mormon Church. We also covered Warren's rise through the ranks of the FLDS leadership and how he took over the role of prophet after his father, Rulon Jeffs, died in 2002. Today, we're going to take a look at how Warren's leadership affected the church and how his actions as prophet made him one of the most wanted men in America. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. You can find new episodes of the show every Tuesday on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. When we last left off, the FLDS was over 10,000 members strong. The majority of the members lived in Short Creek, a region made up of Colorado City, Utah, and Hilldale, Arizona. The FLDS are led by a prophet, a man they believe is a living extension of God on earth. The prophet has a significant amount of control over FLDS members, and when Warren Jeffs inherited the role in 2002, he used that power to inflict emotional and psychological pain on his followers. In late 2003, Warren had only been in charge of the church for a year, but he had already made drastic changes to the way the community ran. Under Warren's orders, the FLDS had isolated itself from most of the outside world at Warren's command. Yet this sudden secrecy caught the attention of the government and the media, and the FLDS community of Short Creek was under constant scrutiny. Law enforcement had been watching the FLDS closely via police patrols. Warren quickly grew tired of the constant government surveillance. On August 10, 2003, he delivered a sermon to his followers, outlining how the blessings of the priesthood had been removed from the land in Short Creek. Warren decided that the city that had been home to the FLDS community for almost 100 years was no longer suitable as their headquarters for worship. 
He ranted about how the constant observation from outsiders corrupted the sanctity of their community. After the sermon on August 10th, Warren suspended all other church gatherings while he searched for what he called lands of refuge that would keep his church far from prying eyes. In one of his journal entries, he wrote, quote, We need to keep this particular property so private and sacred and secret that not even the faithful who are driven will know of this place, because this is where the sacred records are. The wicked, in their mind, feel like if they could destroy the records or get them turned over to the authorities, they could destroy us. The devil knows where we are. But through faith, the wicked and the righteous can be blinded and not find this place. End quote. Warren enlisted the help of David Allred, one of his most trusted followers. Allred's job was to set up a limited liability company in his name, YFZ Land LLC. At this time, Warren had total control over the FLDS's roughly $100 million in assets. This figure included the value of most of the real estate in Short Creek and the portions of the church members' incomes, all of which went directly to Warren to be redistributed as he saw fit. Using those amassed funds, Warren instructed Allred to purchase various plots of land around the country using the YFZ Land LLC and church funds. In November, Allred approached Warren with the listing for a 1,700-acre property, four miles outside of El Dorado, Texas. Warren was sold. The sprawling ranch was just far enough from the surrounding towns, and there was plenty of land on which he could build new church buildings. He told Allred to finalize the $700,000 sale. Allred did as he was commanded, and he bought the property, claiming that it would be used as corporate hunting grounds for his LLC. Warren named the land Yearning for Zion Ranch, and he instructed Allred to begin immediate construction on a temple, residential areas, a meeting house, and other necessary buildings. When completed, the total development cost the church roughly $3 million, but it was now valued at $33.8 million. Still, Warren was careful not to attract the attention of law enforcement. And though Allred's LLC was fined for over $34,000 for various construction and permit violations, Warren made sure he was not involved in any of the legal dealings. He kept himself far from the eyes of the law and let Allred handle these minor legal hiccups while he returned to Short Creek to convince his followers to make the move to the Texas ranch. But Warren found it was a little more difficult to convince people to leave Short Creek than he imagined. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. In our last episode, we discussed how Warren was using isolation as a way to control his followers. But with the completion of the Yearning for Zion Ranch, he began to take things a step further. Despite his claims that the Arizona community was no longer suitable headquarters for their worship, most of the residents knew no other home than Short Creek and were reluctant to leave. This forced Warren to change tactics. Psychologist Adrian Furnham writes that many cult leaders prey upon basic human social needs to maintain control. And when FLDS members showed signs of resisting, Warren highlighted how the move to Texas would make them a closer family. In a passionate sermon, he said, quote, you are preparing to make a heaven on earth. The Lord is about to wipe the wicked off this land, and he will only protect and preserve those who can make a heaven on earth. You want to be part of it, young people. 
end quote. He made sure to emphasize that anyone who respected their religion and their prophet would have no problem beginning anew at the YFZ ranch. Did this approach work to convince the members of the FLDS to relocate? Well, it's complicated. Warren was in some legal hot water during the transition to the YFZ ranch. In July 2004, Brent Jeffs, Warren's nephew, filed a lawsuit against his uncle claiming that the FLDS leader repeatedly molested and raped him when he attended Alta Academy. Brent's case was settled out of court, but the allegations were enough to hinder Warren's plans to relocate his congregation. When Warren officially relocated to the YFZ ranch, he was joined by only 500 Short Creek residents. Though more would move to YFZ ranch later, the majority of the 10,000 FLDS members stayed behind in Arizona. Those who stayed behind, however, were still extremely loyal to Warren, and Short Creek produced much of the income that Warren lived off of, so he would never abandon them. It could be argued that Warren needed the residents of Short Creek as much as they believed they needed their profit. At YFZ Ranch, Warren began to use FLDS women and children as currency. Though he had been in charge of arranging all marriages in the community for some time, Warren began to manipulate his followers by threatening their family members. For example, if a man spoke out against him or questioned one of Warren's decisions, Warren would claim that he had received word from God that one or more of that man's wives should be assigned to another man instead. Something even more sinister happened with the children of the FLDS. Since its beginnings, Mormonism was a religion in which men held most of the power. However, in the system Warren had created, this went a step further. Instead of citizens, women and children were seen as highly valuable commodities. FLDS families were always very large, but now there was an added incentive to having lots of children. A beautiful daughter had the chance to catch the eye of an important elder and marry above her station, while a son could be put to work to increase the family's contribution to the church. Both of these scenarios could elevate a family's status within the FLDS, and it created a fiercely competitive atmosphere amongst families. It was exactly what Warren wanted. He knew that creating competition for social advancement in the church would, in turn, increase his power over his followers, even as he appeared in public less frequently. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now, back to cults. In 2004, Warren returned to Short Creek for a brief period to oversee several marriages. During his time there, he also married the first of his underage brides, Millie Blackmore. 
Millie was 13 at the time her parents, both prominent FLDS leaders in Canada, brought her across the FLDS 1,100-mile Child Bride Pipeline that members operated between Bountiful, British Columbia, Canada's largest polygamous community, and Short Creek. From 1990 to 2006, the pipeline was responsible for bringing at least 50 Canadian girls between the ages of 12 and 17 to the United States, where they were married to older FLDS men. If there was a particular girl a man wanted to marry, he would petition Warren, who would then write the girl's family. Within days, she would be brought across the border and wed to a man many years her senior. Such was the case for Millie Blackmore, who was brought to the YFZ ranch when she married then 48-year-old Warren. Warren's behavior suggests that it was always his intention to take child brides during his reign as prophet. If nothing else indicates this, his actions during the construction of the YFZ property certainly do. While the ranch's temple was being built, Warren instructed the crew to make a secret bed inside one of the altars. In his journal, he noted that he wanted the altar to be easy to hide. He described how it would have wheels so that it could be wheeled out of view whenever it was not in use. The altar was also built with a removable top, and underneath, there was a bed that was made of sturdy hardwood that was designed not to rattle. Warren wrote, quote, The bed will be a size big enough for me to lay on. It will be covered with a sheet, but it will have a plastic cover to protect the mattress from what will happen on it. End quote. Warren claimed that whatever events took place on the bed would be representative of, quote, God working through him. This statement suggests that Warren felt the need to justify his intentions to himself and to the members who were helping him construct the bed. Russell H. Fazio, professor of social psychology at The Ohio State University, explains how an individual's behavior in any given situation is a direct result of his or her perception of the situation. If a person is manipulated to have a positive outlook on a situation, they're more likely to act in a way that benefits the situation rather than deters it. So, because Warren asserted that his plans for the bed were also God's plans, the builders did not question the morality of the bed's purpose and completed it as asked. Warren also wrote in his journal, quote, If the government officials come on this land, every man must be willing to give their life before they allow them to enter on the temple grounds or inside the temple, end quote. This further suggests that Warren had the intent to commit criminal activities at YFC Ranch. But the marriage to Millie Blackmore was not the first underage marriage Warren was responsible for. In 2001, three years prior to his move from Short Creek, Warren performed his first underage marriage. The ceremony was between a 14-year-old named Elisa Wall and her 19-year-old cousin, Alan Steed. The marriage had been delayed once before by Rulon Jeffs. Elisa explained to Rulon that she did not like her cousin and that she had begged for more time or a different husband. Warren, however, was less sympathetic than his father. Rulon had not yet passed away in 2001, and therefore Warren was not officially prophet. However, as we discussed in part one, he was acting as prophet long before he officially took over in 2002. Using that power, Warren forced Elisa to go through with the marriage. Here's how Elisa described Warren when she was interviewed on the early show on CBS. No matter how he destroyed families or destroyed people's lives, he always excused it with, this is the word of God, this is the will of God. I really think that in part of Warren, he believes that he is an extension of God and God on this earth. 
Elisa's family refused to go against Warren, and she was forced to endure a marriage she did not want with a man she did not love. In her book, Stolen Innocence, Elisa describes it as the most traumatic four years of her life. Her cousin repeatedly raped her, she endured multiple miscarriages, and she felt alone through it all. Knowing she could not turn to her family or neighbors for support against Alan, she began sleeping in her truck and avoiding her home as much as possible. Eventually, in 2005, Elisa escaped from the Short Creek community. Shortly after leaving, then 17-year-old Elisa found the strength to go to the police with her story. She testified that she did not want to enter into the marriage at 14, and she told law enforcement about other underage marriages Warren had performed in Short Creek. The police, who had long had their eye on the FLDS and Warren Jeffs, seized the opportunity. They used Elisa's testimony to obtain a warrant to raid the offices of the Colorado City Unified School District. As a reminder to our listeners, Colorado City is one of the two small towns that made up Short Creek. During the raid, police hoped to find incriminating files or financial documents that would solidify their case against Warren or help them find him. After all, Warren had not been seen in the public for months. Following the sexual abuse allegations from his nephew, Warren had only made select appearances outside the YFZ compound and Short Creek community. When he got wind that another investigation had been launched against him, he officially went on the run. In a tape he sent to his followers, he said, quote, The Lord has shown me this, that my enemies don't just want me to be taken prisoner, but they want me dead. But the Lord has directed that I go into deeper hiding and continue to gather the faithful, develop the lands of refuge, and keep the redemption of Zion mission progressing. I have been instructed of the Lord to have my scribe and helpmate, Naomi, get better disguise clothes, and we are working on whatever the Lord directs." End quote. In June 2005, Warren was officially charged with sexual assault on a minor and with conspiracy to commit sexual misconduct with a minor, and a warrant was put out for his arrest. Law enforcement searched both YFZ Ranch and Short Creek, but Warren was not found in either location. Federal prosecutors added charges of unlawful flight to evade prosecution to Warren's list and announced a $10,000 reward for information leading to his arrest. Once again, he turned to his brothers for support. While avoiding capture, Warren put his brother Lyle in charge as acting leader. If you recall from part one, Lyle had always acted as Warren's protector and enforcer. Warren knew that putting Lyle in temporary power would look like a show of strength. It would give the members of the FLDS the courage to remain true to the church and to Warren, even in his absence. But Lyle and the other Jeff's brothers had their work cut out for them. The leader of the FLDS had now been put on the FBI's Most Wanted Fugitive list and had also been featured on an episode of America's Most Wanted. While Lyle handled things on the ground, their brothers Seth and Isaac were in motion protecting Warren from law enforcement. Isaac was responsible for protecting Warren on the road. Isaac drove Warren and his favorite bride, 31-year-old Naomi Jessup, around the country avoiding capture. However, Warren made sure Naomi did not feel like they were on the run. Instead, he sold their constant relocation as a secret extended trip. As a fugitive, Warren visited all of the lower 48 states, and he tasked Isaac with taking pictures of him and Naomi in the various cities in which they stopped. There's a famous photo of Warren and Naomi, both clad in leathers, atop a motorcycle. There are also images of the couple posing together by St. Louis's famous landmarks, Warren's blasé attitude toward being a fugitive on the run shows just how arrogant he had become. 
Yet Warren never stopped recording sermons and sending them back to YFZ Ranch in Short Creek. In a blatant show of arrogance, Warren was living in direct contradiction to the lifestyle he demanded of his followers. Every night when they stopped to find lodging, Warren made Naomi watch pornographic and extremely violent movies with him. Warren recorded that Naomi was not comfortable with this, but he demanded it of her. He calmed her by calling it a study of wickedness. On one particular stop in New Orleans, Warren spent much of the night walking the length of Bourbon Street, claiming that God had wanted him to bear witness to the sin. When he finally returned to his room, he kept Naomi up until nearly dawn watching more adult films. He wrote in his journals how he wished the Lord would sweep the city clean of all its evil. When he received word of Hurricane Katrina months later, he wrote, quote, The Lord performed a work here. I thank him for answering prayers and fulfilling his purposes. The nights on the road were rarely times of rest for Warren or Naomi. It was during this time as a fugitive that Warren began to have what he called his heavenly sessions. He described the experience as being consumed by a fire from heaven. He told Naomi and his followers that he had to endure this great pain as a way to atone for their sins, much like Jesus did when he died on the cross. Sometimes during these sessions, Warren would go into seizures or experience temporary paralysis. Many medical professionals seem to agree that Warren's heavenly sessions were likely self-induced seizures. A small percentage of people have the ability to trigger seizures in themselves using varying stimuli. People who resort to self-inducing seizures are often using the event as a form of stress relief. In Warren's case, he may have been self-inducing his heavenly sessions to gain sympathy from his followers or to escape the stress of being on the run. Whether or not the seizures were self-induced, Naomi was trained on how to handle Warren when he experienced one of these sessions. She was also instructed to record whatever Warren said during the event because they believed it was God's way of communicating through Warren. Warren claimed that during one of his heavenly sessions, he was instructed to take several more underage brides. The next time he visited the YFZ ranch, he married a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. In a journal entry dated near those occasions, Warren wrote, quote, If the world knew what I was doing, they would hang me from the highest tree, end quote. This entry suggests that Warren knew his behavior was wrong, but he used the messages he received during the heavenly sessions to justify his actions. But despite his seemingly devout mindset, Warren was again breaking FLDS commandments by dressing in Gentile or outsider clothing as opposed to the plain formal clothing he was supposed to wear as an FLDS man. He was also listening to music, using computers, and visiting tanning salons. He claimed that much of his behavior was to help disguise him and Naomi from recognition on their travels. In the long hours spent traveling via car, Warren would read letters sent to him by his followers. If anything in the correspondences upset him, or he got word that someone had disobeyed his commands, he would use a prepaid cell phone to call Lyle and have the offending party handled. Often, that meant that the person responsible was kicked out of the church and shunned by the community. Psychologist Dr. Michael J. Hurd would explain this behavior with the phrase, psychology of hypocrisy. He writes that hypocrisy, like the kind displayed by Warren, is the symptom of intellectual dishonesty. In other words, when an individual struggles to reconcile their individual beliefs and actions with the ideas he or she preaches, an intellectually dishonest person will often react to resistance or disobedience with wrath. 
Though Warren was no longer an active presence in Short Creek or the YFZ Ranch, his power had not lessened any. He continued to perform marriages, some with underage brides, and preach against the outside world. When he wasn't reading letters from FLDS bases, he would journal, sit in silent prayer, or speak with his family on the phone. Between June 12th and August 27th, 2005, Warren, Naomi, and Isaac traveled more than 26,800 miles by car. Toward the end of 2005, Warren made another visit to Short Creek. He told his followers that even though God had blinded those searching for him, he wanted security in the community tripled. And despite the extra protection, he only stayed for three hours to perform a handful of plural marriages before he went back on the road. Around the time of Warren's visit, his brother Seth found himself in legal trouble. Seth was responsible for delivering supplies, letters, and money to Warren at specific drop-off points while he was on the run. On November 28, 2005, Seth was pulled over in Pueblo, Colorado. The police searched his vehicle and found letters addressed to Warren, $142,000 in cash, $7,000 in prepaid credit cards and phone cards, and more. When questioned, Seth admitted that he had been on his way to deliver the items to Warren, but he refused to give up his older brother's whereabouts. He was arrested for suspicion of harboring a fugitive and later convicted, which resulted in three years probation and a $2,500 fine. The search of Seth's car was a huge turning point for law enforcement. Among the other items they found, they also discovered a number of Warren's personal records and documents. Several of these contained detailed reports of the FLDS's financial situation. It was enough for the authorities to double their efforts to bring Warren to justice. After this incident, Warren went into even deeper hiding, and his whereabouts and actions became harder to track. By May 6, 2006, the FBI was frustrated with the lack of leads they had in the case. They made the decision to upgrade Warren to the top 10 most wanted fugitives list next to Osama bin Laden. And the reward money for his capture was raised to $100,000 from the previous $10,000. Warren had evaded capture for nearly a year at this point. The increased attention began to pay off. On June 8, 2006, non-FLDS locals spotted Warren back in Short Creek. According to his journals, he was there at that time to perform another child bride ceremony. Law enforcement made a decision to increase patrols along all major highways leading away from the compound. This decision led to the capture of one of America's most reviled religious leaders. On August 28, 2006, around 9 p.m., Isaac Jeffs was pulled over in Clark County, Nevada on a minor traffic violation. The temporary plates on his brand-new red Cadillac Escalade were not visible. When the officer approached the car, he noticed a stoic-looking Isaac in the front seat and a seemingly calm couple in the back seat. The man in the back, he noted, was eating a salad but refusing to make eye contact. Upon closer inspection, the officer could see the man's jugular was pulsing, and he made the decision to ask for identification from all parties in the car. When the presented IDs did not check out and the officer realized that he was facing known fugitive Warren Jeffs, he placed Warren, Isaac, and Naomi under arrest. We'll return to our story in just a moment. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to our story. After being arrested by the traffic officer, Warren Jeffs was taken immediately to jail in Nevada. However, after several days, he was quickly transferred to the Purgatory Correctional Facility in Utah. One would assume that with Warren behind bars and awaiting trial, the FLDS would move on and the horrors Warren inflicted upon the community would stop. Unfortunately, Warren's arrest was only the beginning of a new chapter of his reign. In prison, Warren was kept in a cell in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. He spent the other hours showering and making phone calls. It didn't take long for the isolation to take its toll on Warren's mental health. According to his guards at the Purgatory Correctional Facility, Warren spent almost the entirety of his time on his knees in prayer, and he often refused to eat. Warren had been incarcerated for four months when he claimed to have a series of heavenly sessions that were more violent than any he had previously experienced. He said that he saw great harm come to his family, and he described how he had seen many of his followers murdered in his absence. He continued by recounting a vision where the members of the FLDS were driven from their homes, brutalized and humiliated. He described how the Lord told him that his favorite wife, Naomi, had taken ill without him and was near death. These visions continued for days. Eventually, Warren claimed that he had seen Naomi die and that she had been buried in the cemetery at the YFZ ranch. There was only one problem. Naomi had never taken ill. In fact, she was in nearly perfect health. On January 18, 2007, five months after his capture, Warren began to compile a scripture-like recording of his visions. In his writings, Warren outlined an intense rapture-like scenario that would befall the United States because the government had put him in jail. He condemned all Gentiles and non-fundamentalist Mormons as evildoers and wicked people. The next day's writings outlined how the great nations of the world would send representatives to orchestrate the attempted destruction of the FLDS and of Warren himself. He wrote that Jesus would then descend and destroy the nations who had eliminated his favorite people. Warren explained that the FLDS should not fear the ill-wishers. He said he would be granted the power to protect them and that God would send angels to provide them with assistance when they needed to persevere. Over the course of the next week, Warren's visions grew increasingly violent and grandiose. 
He talked of more destruction, castration and mutilation, and his undoubted power. On January 20th, Warren entered a self-imposed fast. He went three days without food or water, and on that third day, he claimed that God wanted him to test his people. So when Warren's brother, Nephi, came to visit on January 25th, Warren asked him to record their conversation. He said, quote, I am not the prophet. I never was the prophet, and I have been deceived by the powers of evil, end quote. Warren went on to say how he had stolen the role of prophet from another prominent church member after his father's passing. Warren then broke down and apologized to his brother and to his followers for his weakness and lies. He asked Nephi to distribute the recording throughout the community. However, before he left, Nephi told Warren that he knew that the Lord was just testing them and that Warren was truly the prophet. When Nephi sent out Warren's message, the YFZ ranch voluntarily cut their power for two weeks in a show of support for their leader. Even with his followers behind him, Warren's mood deteriorated behind bars. On January 28, 2007, he attempted to kill himself via hanging, and the prison placed him on suicide watch for several days. Immediately after he was taken off, he threw himself against a wall and began smashing his head against the concrete. Warren was put under close surveillance until April of that year, when he finally seemed to calm down. In fact, it was as if Warren was back to his old self. In a prison evaluation, he explained that he had simply been testing his followers and was pleased to see that they had not wavered in their loyalty to him. Warren said he knew he was the true prophet all along and that he never doubted that fact. By May, he was actively running his church again from behind bars. Most of his free time was spent drafting directives for his followers. Later that month, he ordered an FLDS-wide fast, which was meant to encourage the courts not to make the case documents public. The fast did not work, and this outraged Warren. Warren did not cope well with the powerlessness of his situation. Because he had no freedom and control in prison, he grew more outrageous with what he demanded of his followers. He began ordering his wives to spy on each other and report back to him when one of them was slacking off in her housework, gossiping with neighbors, or coveting another man. He did this in fear that one or more of his many wives would stray while he was away. He wrote them long letters, some of which threatened forced apostasy on any woman and her children who strayed from Warren's command. But things were deteriorating fast for the notorious leader. On July 13, 2007, an Arizona grand jury added eight additional sex offense charges to Warren's case, including sex with a minor and incest. In between those indictments and the beginning of his trial in September 2007, Warren lost 30 pounds from his constant fasting and the sleep deprivation he suffered because of his extended prayer hours. He was hospitalized for this once before jury selection began on September 7th. Between September 11th and 25th, the jury heard testimony from Brent Jeffs, Elisa Wall, and other former FLDS members. And on September 25th, 2007, Warren was found guilty of two counts of rape by accomplice. He was returned to the Purgatory Correctional Facility to await sentencing. Judge James L. Shoemate sentenced Warren to 10 years to life in prison on November 20th, 2007. During his transfer to the Utah State Prison, guards noted that Warren looked much less smug than he did earlier in the day. They claimed he rode in dejected silence for the length of the journey. Warren's dour mood would reflect the tone of the FLDS for the next several years. 
In the early months of 2008, a young woman claiming to be a 16-year-old named Sarah called the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. Sarah said she was married to a 50-year-old named Dale Barlow against her will. The Texas DFPS reported this call to law enforcement, and from April 4th to 7th, 2008, officers forcibly entered the YFZ ranch compound. After three full days of searching the premises and questioning members, 468 minors were removed from the premises, some of them mothers to the other children. In addition to the minors, 130 women volunteered to leave the YFC ranch with the officers. The aftermath of the raid was a confusing time for FLDS members. Some were glad they had gotten out and were reunited with their families on the outside. On the other hand, the 100 men and women who had chosen to stay behind grieved for the children who had been taken from them. That's probably the worst thing a mother can ever go through. You feel worthless. You feel your pain clear from inside out because everything you love is taken away. You come home and there's your husband and you say, I'm here, but no children. While the hearings went on, the judge kept the children in protective custody away from their parents until DNA tests were completed to make sure that all the children were given to a family member. However, in late April, the court decided that the YFC ranch was an unfit environment for children, and the FLDS kids who had been taken away were registered in the Texas child care system and placed with temporary foster families. It was a very stressful time for the children and families of the FLDS, especially when it was revealed that the woman who had claimed to be 16-year-old Sarah was really a 33-year-old Colorado woman named Rosita Swinton. By May 2, 2008, the case was crumbling. The state of Texas dropped its arrest warrant for Dale Barlow, and the Texas Third Court of Appeals concluded that there had not been enough evidence of immediate danger to justify the removal of the FLDS children. Texas Child Protective Services then stepped in to petition the court not to overturn its decision to remove the minors from the YFZ ranch. The agency came forward with photographs of Warren Jeffs kissing his 12-year-old bride. The Texas Supreme Court ruled that the evidence submitted by the CPS was not concrete enough. They ordered that the children be returned to their families, and by June 2nd, the FLDS minors were being sent back to their homes. But the raid wasn't a complete failure for law enforcement. In their search, they discovered a 20-minute audio tape that documented Warren's sexual assault of his 12-year-old bride. Thanks to this and the evidence brought forth by the Texas CPS, the state now had cause to open another investigation into Warren and five other FLDS leaders on the suspicion of sexual assault and bigamy. Shortly after the raid in 2008, Warren was brought to trial for the crimes he committed in Arizona. If convicted of the sex charges, he would have had time added to his 10-to-life sentence. Warren spent two years in the Arizona prison awaiting his trial. Because of this, the judge decided to dismiss the case on the grounds that the time Warren served while waiting would have exceeded his maximum sentence for the crime. Additionally, no victims in Arizona would testify against their profit, and this likely affected the judge's decision to drop the case. In July 2010, Warren's legal team filed an appeal for a new trial in Utah in hopes of getting that conviction overturned. They argued that there were errors made during the trial, one of which was an error on the judge's part. Warren's lawyers believed the judge should have informed the jury that Warren could not have been found guilty of accomplice to rape unless he intended for Alan, Elisa Wall's husband, to engage in non-consensual sex with her. 
The appeal was denied, and Warren's sentence remained. Three months later, he wrote an intense eight-page letter to President Barack Obama, petitioning for his release. In the letter, Warren warned that if he was not released, terrible things would befall the United States. He ended the correspondence with an invitation for President Obama and the rest of America to repent and be forgiven by the FLDS Church. The letter remains unanswered. While Warren wrote letters and spent hours praying in his 7-foot by 12-foot cell, his defense team prepared for his next legal battle. Warren was scheduled to stand trial for his sex crimes in Texas in August 2011. During that trial, the jury heard the audio tape of Warren assaulting his 12-year-old child bride, and it left several of them in tears. They also saw DNA evidence that Warren had fathered a child with his 15-year-old bride. Warren appeared stoic and unmoved by their emotion. Warren grew frustrated that his legal team was not doing more for him, and just before the closing arguments, he fired them. In his earlier trials, Warren had a tendency to shout and deliver long-winded, passionate sermons. However, in Texas, Warren used his 30-minute time slot to move down the juror's bench and silently stare at each juror. At the end, he simply stated, quote, I am at peace, end quote. When the jury went into deliberations on August 11, 2011, it took them only three hours and 45 minutes to return a guilty verdict on two counts of sexual assault of a child. With Warren's past convictions on record, the judge sentenced him to life in prison in Palestine, Texas, at the Louis C. Powledge Unit of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. He will be eligible for parole on July 22, 2038, and will be 82 at that time. The charges of bigamy, which were brought against Warren after the 2008 raid on YFZ Ranch, were dropped. The state decided that because Warren was already serving a life sentence, there was no need to spend taxpayers' dollars on additional trials and convictions. In the Texas prison, Warren was, and still is, videoed every hour of the 23 hours he spent in his cell, and the guards watch him closely to prevent any attempt at suicide. But it seemed Warren believed what he told the jury. He was at peace. A few months into his incarceration, he began to speak aloud to his deceased father, Rulon. He was often recorded saying, quote, I yearn to be among you, to teach and train as the Lord allows, end quote. When family came to visit, Warren smiled and encouraged them to, quote, keep sweet and pray. By all accounts, he seemed in a relatively stable state of mind and had a calm demeanor until he was taken to East Texas Medical Center in a medically induced coma. Warren had been fasting and refusing to sleep again, but this time it nearly killed him. After his hospitalization, a judge gave the order that the prison could use force feeding via a stomach tube if Warren ever chose to fast again. Despite being forced to eat regularly, Warren was still having his visions. On December 12, 2011, Warren had one of his biggest revelations to date. He explained to his followers upon their next visit that God had commanded him to start the United Order, a new system for deciding which members deserved to get into heaven. As part of this new order, Warren told his brother, Lyle, to introduce a new class system meant to take advantage of the social climbing mindset Warren had previously created. Historically, the FLDS shared most of their resources. Things like food and land were distributed fairly based on income and contribution. However, Warren asked Lyle to do away with this. He commanded his brother to line up members of the church outside the abandoned elementary school at random. 
Lyle was to quiz these individuals on their knowledge of the church, their commitment to Warren, and their pride in their faith. Lyle would then determine if the answers were sufficient enough and share his thoughts with Warren. In reality, the class system was arbitrary. When Lyle wrote letters or called Warren with the results of the quizzes, Warren told him which members to induct into the United Order and which ones to assign to working class jobs. Warren was using the information his brother brought him to create the classes based on which people could be of most use to him while he was in prison. Those families who were loyal offered funds for Warren's legal fees and provided a strong public backing for him within the community were inducted into the United Order. Those who couldn't contribute as much were made part of the working class. Working class families were uprooted from their nice homes to make way for the new elite families to move in. Warren instructed Lyle to make sure that the upper echelon received the best groceries and always had enough to feed their families, while those in lower classes might only receive meager rations of bread. American Physical Society fellow Eldar Shafir of Princeton University takes an interesting perspective on this. Shafir writes that disenfranchised people dedicate most of their time and energy to juggling resources and searching for a way to improve their situations. It leaves little, quote, cognitive bandwidth for decision-making or questioning the world around them. In essence, Warren had once again solidified his control over the people of the FLDS. The working classes were too focused on surviving and social climbing to dissent, and the elite had no reason to complain. The distractions and the complacency allowed Warren to continue exploiting his followers. A former cook for Lyle Jeffs recalls her time living as part of the working class. She and her family were forced to cook a full lobster dinner for an elite house every night one week, while her household struggled to get by in rations of rice and beans or a loaf of bread. Another former FLDS member testified that her family was literally starving. Her household had 40 people living in it, and they were expected to survive on noodles, brown rice, tomato juice, and a bit of bread. By creating such distinct class differences, Warren made social ascension the ultimate goal for most families. And one of the only ways to social climb was through the prophet's favor. By pitting FLDS families against one another, Warren ensured that they remained loyal to him and continued to try to please him, even while he was in prison. To this day, the majority of FLDS members remain loyal to Warren Jeffs and refuse to engage with law enforcement or other outsiders. In fact, Warren's God Squad is still highly active in Short Creek. If these young men get word that a Gentile is in town, they will follow the individual around in large, blacked-out pickups, both as a means of intimidation and surveillance. While many things remain the same, there have been several changes in the FLDS since Warren's arrest. There have been no marriages on any of the FLDS compounds across North America. Warren's followers truly believe that their leader's imprisonment is a spiritual trial and that they are all being tested by God. The members of the FLDS await the day when the prophet will be released and returned to them. Additionally, the government seized the entirety of the YFZ ranch property, several of Warren's smaller properties in other states, and a handful of buildings and businesses on the Short Creek land. The Short Creek real estate was either sold to private owners or is still in state holding. One of those buildings that was released and privately purchased was Warren's former mansion. The new owner converted the 14-bedroom home to a hotel called America's Most Wanted Bed and Breakfast. 
though there are no pictures of Warren or any FLDS decor in the home, there are some parts of the house that remain unchanged. For example, the word Zion is still engraved in the wall above the kitchen, and the pale blue carpet, a feature picked by Warren himself, has not been removed. So we know what happened to Warren and to some of the FLDS property, but what about the underage girls he took as his brides? Whatever became of them? Well, the 12-year-old and 15-year-old Warren married in Texas were taken into protective custody during the 2008 raid of the YFC ranch. Both girls remained in the care of the state until they reached adulthood. However, the FBI and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police continue their search for three more of Warren's underage brides, Millie, Alicia Ray, and Nolita Colleen Blackmore. The young Canadian sisters would now be in their late 20s and have not been seen in public or heard from since Warren's capture. Evidence suggests that they're being kept at one of the FLDS compounds on the West Coast, but they could be anywhere in North America. After Warren's imprisonment, many divisions of the FLDS created houses of hiding where they would await Warren's return. The Blackmore sisters could be in any one of those houses as well. However, without enough evidence, they have no way of searching any of the properties for the young women. Many of Warren's other wives and children have taken refuge from the public eye in these safe houses. The atrocities Warren Jeffs inflicted upon the people of the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are some of the most heinous committed in the last decade. His psychological abuse and manipulation was so great that many of his loyal followers are left with permanent damage. They struggle daily to manage on their own without their profit around to give them purpose. It has been over a decade since Warren was caught, but the fallout from his crimes will last much longer. The young women who had their innocence stolen by him and the families he separated through his mass excommunications will have to deal with their pain and trauma for their entire lives. Yet the FLDS still has around 10,000 active members who view Warren as the unquestioned prophet. Every communication Warren receives in prison from his loyal followers suggests that they will continue with their way of life. They have no intention of abandoning their support of Warren until it is time to appoint a new prophet. There have been no official weddings or church services held since Warren's capture. But in 2014, the community made the collective decision to reopen the public schools. After Lyle Jeffs was arrested for welfare fraud and other charges in June of 2017, they also decided to eradicate the class system so that none of the members would suffer while others thrived. Perhaps these changes are glimmers of hope that the people of the FLDS are preparing to rebuild their community without their profit to guide them. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, thanks for listening to Cults. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jordan Giddens and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>